I wonder, have you ever been lost? Uh, I once caused our associate pastor, Zach, to get lost in the woods, and then he stepped in a yellow jacket's nest, and then we had to sprint to outpace the bees, and then by the time we finally outran them, they stopped stinging him. I didn't get stung at all, by the way. Uh, we were completely lost. I don't think that Zach will ever go on a hike with me in the woods ever again. And, you know, here's what's more, even more humiliating about it. It was at Lantern Hill where I have hiked hundreds of times. But you see, at the time, I was talking. I was talking at the time, and I was talking. We were talking about something, and I was completely distracted by whatever I was talking about. And we missed the turn, and we got lost. And if it wasn't for smartphones, we'd probably still be out there today. You'd be looking for, looking for your church staff in the woods. Uh, you know, but I think about this idea of, again, if we didn't have smartphones, we're left kind of wandering out there. You know, we think about biblically wandering, because that's what our passage is really about this morning. It's about this wandering season for Israel of their own making. Like, where is God in that? Where is he in that? And specifically, this passage is going to kind of teach us something about that. But do we want God with us in our season of wandering? Whether it's something that's kind of our own fault, if you want to call it that, or a consequence of our actions, or whether it's just the hard things in life. We talked about this a little bit when we talked about suffering a few weeks back. Do we want a God who is kind of, as the Bible teaches, a God who knows the very numbers of, our, of the hairs of our heads, a God who knows when the sparrow falls from the trees, that he is in every detail and knows and controls all things? Or would we rather that he were not involved? We're going to learn some things this morning as God speaks to us through Israel's journey in the wilderness in this season. If you're just joining us, we're in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, fifth book of the Old Testament. And Moses is giving essentially this sermon to his people, to the people of Israel. And really this is the second generation of the people who came out of Israel. And so he's talking to them about their parents and their failure, as we looked at last week, to enter the promised land. And in fact, at the end of the passage, God has rebuked his people and says, because you disobeyed me and didn't enter the promised land, go back by the way you came and you're going to wander in the wilderness. And now he's speaking to the second generation. And so our chapter this morning, chapter 2, picks it up right at that point. Listen to what Moses says. He says, Then we turned back and headed for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord had told me. And we traveled through the hill country of Seir for many days. The Lord then said to me, You have been traveling around this hill country long enough. Turn north. Command the people you are about to travel through the territory of your brothers, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Don't provoke them, for I will not give you any of their land, not even a foot of it, because I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his possession. You may purchase food from them so that you may eat, and you may buy water from them to drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through this immense wilderness. The Lord your God has been with you this past 40 years, and you have lacked nothing. So we bypassed our brothers, the descendants of Esau, who lived in Seir, we turned away from the Arabah road and from Elath and Ezion-Geber, and we traveled along the road to the wilderness to Moab. The Lord said to me, show no hostility toward Moab, and do not provoke them to battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, since I have given Ar as a possession to the descendants of Lot. Jump down to verse 13. And then the Lord said, now get up and cross the Zered Valley. So we crossed the Zered Valley, and the time we spent traveling from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zered Valley was 38 years, until the entire generation of fighting men that had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Indeed, the Lord's hand was against them to eliminate them from the camp until they had all perished. When all the fighting men had died among the people, the Lord spoke to me. 
Today, you are going to cross the border of Moab at Ar. When you get close to the Ammonites, don't show any partiality to them or hostility to them or provoke them, for I will not give you any of the Ammonites' land as a possession. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. We'll stop there. Pray with me this morning as we dive into God's word. Lord God, we come before you this morning humbly seeking what you would have for us as we look at this ancient story, this message of Moses to his people in the 15th century B.C., Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, speak a word to us today, something for us to hear in the 21st century? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of our message this morning is A, is a God Who Engages With Me. And we're going to be looking at two big points from the text and then sort of making an inference as we look at the larger narrative of Scripture. The first thing is that God engages with me through timing, that is, through our history. That's corporate and individual. Secondly, that God engages with me through people and places. You could add events, if you will, but through the actual journey. And ultimately, as we look at the full text of Scripture, the full redemptive plan of God, God engages with me primarily through his son Jesus for the sake of our eternity. So those are the three things we're going to really address this morning. We're going to dive in right in verse, verses 1 to 3, this first little section. And it, has, it contains three time signatures, as it were, related to Israel's sojourn, this time of their wandering. Now the first one doesn't look like it. The first one is in verse 1 where Moses says, we turned back. We turned back. But remember that this phrase comes because God has rebuked his people. God's people, the the parents' generation, has come to the edge of the promised land. God said, go and take possession of it, and they refused. They disobeyed. They missed that opportunity, as we talked about last week. And so God rebuked them, and thus began their sojourn. They're wandering around in the wilderness. In other words, God was the one who set the beginning at his correction, if you will, and began their season in the wilderness. Now, what's interesting, if we could have the map up, we talked about last week that it's a, about an 11-day journey walking from Mount Sinai up to Kadesh Barnea to the border of the Promised Land. God will not bring them back by that same route. After they wander around for 38 years, they'll cross into the territory of Moab, and then he will bring them back eventually after 40 years from the east. Now, why does God bring them from the east rather than just going back the short journey around and right into, into the Promised Land? Well, there's perhaps several reasons, but if we were to kind of look ahead into Joshua, we kind of learn a couple of them. The first one is that God is going to, in his grace, give this second generation of his people their own Red Sea experience, if you will. Remember that this generation that Moses is talking to now, they were, most of them were born during the wilderness wandering or were little ones, like the little ones we saw today, at the Red Sea crossing. And so they didn't experience that miraculous deliverance of God. And so as they take possession of the promised land, again, you can read this in Joshua a little bit later, he's going to give them their own sort of deliverance experience as they go through the River Jordan into the promised land. That's perhaps one reason. Another reason is that God is giving his people fighting experience. He's preparing them. He's making them battle-hardened for the conquest of the promised land. This second generation is, as it were, a little soft Right? They, while they've wandered the wilderness, and God kind of uses that to organize them, uh, they, they have not gone through the trial and seen God's deliverance. And so he uses the time in the plains of Moab, what Zach will cover next week, to battle harden them, to prepare them. And there's a spiritual picture for us there that we're going to get into as we talk about this sojourn specifically. So the first time signature uh, that we turn back denotes the beginning 
that is at God's correction. The second time signature occurs in verse 2, and it says, for many days. Now, most scholars uh, believe that for many days actually is encapsulating the 38 years of the sojourn, of the wandering. For many days, we wandered in the hill country of Seir until, and we'll get to the next one in just a moment. But in that, in phrasing this, this idea of uh, many days, we see in the actual sojourn, the actual wandering, that that is at God's provision. So if the beginning of their sojourn is at God's correction, the middle, the actual time that they're wandering is about God's provision, his correction, his provision. And we see that most clearly in Exodus and in Numbers and here in Deuteronomy, that God provides manna. Miraculously, each day, bread appears on the grass, like on the dew, and enough for them to eat for each day, and only enough to eat for each day. By the way, when they do finally enter the promised land, all of a sudden, the bread from heaven disappears. God provides, it is a, a faithful, a continuous reminder of his faithfulness. Listen to what uh, Moses says at the end of the book of Deuteronomy about that. He says, I, that is God, led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes and the sandals on your feet did not wear out. Nehemiah, reflecting on uh, God's time, or God's people's time wandering in the wilderness after the exile, says this. He says, you provided for them in the wilderness for 40 years. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell for many days. God was with them in their sojourn. And I'll tell you, like, I don't, I have never really focused on the fact of how giant a miracle that is. I mean, let me just ask you, how many times in your lifetime have you changed out or replaced your winter jacket because it wore out? Right? How many, how many years or days or months or whatever it is do, do, do a pair of jeans last you? How often do you pair, replace a pair of jeans? But their sandals did not ra- uh, wear out. My oldest childhood friend, Bob Kerwin, replaces his running shoes about every 200 miles. Why? Because they wear out. Now, if you and I were to look at his shoes, I don't know that you could tell that they are worn out. I think his replacement frequency is a little extreme, personally. But nonetheless, you get the point. It's okay, I had permission to, t- to tell that story. You get the point. Like, their shoes didn't wear out. I went through his pair of uh, sandals this summer. This is a giant miracle of God's provision, so much so that he recounts it twice elsewhere in the Old Testament. The sojourn itself, the 38 years all the way to the 40 years, is about God's perfect provision. It's our second time signature. Third time signature, signature, and I love the way the Lord says this. You've been wandering around in the hill country long enough. Turn north. You've been there long enough. And so the end of their sojourn is marked by God's direction. We could say new direction. That he routes them toward the promised land. He begins to move them to that next place in their story. And in verse 7, sort of encapsulates what God is doing in his people when, he said, when it says this, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through this immense wilderness. The Lord your God has been with you these past 40 years, and you have lacked nothing. It's a huge, huge application for us here. I wonder if you have been wandering of late, maybe even of your own making. Or maybe you're just in a season of uh, a storm or a valley or whatever other biblical metaphor or picture you want to use. Maybe it's the season of wandering, wondering, and waiting. What, God, what are you doing? I want to tell you about my new friend, Antoine. I met Antoine this past week in the parking lot here at GBC. I was pulling back in, and there's a young man standing there with his hood up. Uh, and his car broken down. I just kind of pulled up and I just said, hey, are you, you all set? Do you need anything? 
And it was clearly like a little perplexed. So I hopped out. We began talking, kind of troubleshooting his car. And through a series of fortunate events, if you will, we were able to get his car to the mechanic. By the way, he's still having some problems. So if there are mechanics in the room, see me after. But we got his car to the mechanic. We got some, got some work done on the car. And, and more importantly, in the time that we spent having conversation, we spent over an hour together, and then we spent time the next couple of days, actually. Antoine shared with me a bit of his story. And he's a young man who has been through an incredible amount of adversity, and yet is an incredibly positive person. And I was able to, in our time together, just share the love of Jesus with him. And we uh, just instantly bonded. We had this kind of connection. I shared with him about our 20s group here at GBC. Some of you guys are here. I'm going to be connecting you later. And just about what God is doing here, what God wanted to do in his life, so on and so forth. And you know, as we were, as we were talking, it became really apparent that God was moving in his life. He said to me at one point, and he was upset about his car being broken down, but he said, I can see now. He said, you know, I've been praying for a while that God would help me with this place where I'm at in life, bring me to the next place. And he said, I know that God brought me here today. Now think about it. He's here because his car is broken down. He said, and I think he's making the very application point that this text is talking about, that God is in the valley of even a broken down car in a parking lot and connected the two of us. By the way, Antoine's here with us this morning. Can I just ask you to give a GBC welcome to our brother Antoine? I love you, brother. It's been a joy to get to know you. We're excited about what God's doing in your life. But you know, this, what Antoine said, he really pulled the application, having not read the passage yet, of course, or heard this message. And here's the big deal. Your sojourn, your wandering, is not a parenthesis to God's activity in your life. God is not absent during the hard time in your life, even if it's something that is of your own cause. Think about it. Israel is wandering because they blew it. They missed that opportunity. But God is still with them. He marked the beginning of that time. He is with them, providing for them in that time. And he marks the end of it. And they come to the end of it, learning the lessons that exactly he intended them to learn. God is not asleep at the switch. He is not absent. He is with you in whatever place and sojourn, uh, season of sojourn you may happen to be in. And perhaps like Israel, God is saying to you, okay, long enough. We're changing direction. We're moving on. Well, that brings us to the second thing. God engages with us through places and people. He engages with us in our journey. And there's this profound picture of this in the text that that maybe at first blush doesn't read that way because God kind of marches his people or treks his people by three other territories and explicitly said, hey, these aren't yours. I want to actually read the verses again because I think it's that important. Verse 4, he says this, Command the people you are about to travel through the territory of your brothers, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Don't provoke them, for I will not give you any of their land, not even a foot of it, because I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his possession. And he goes on, verse 9, The Lord said to me, Show no hostility toward Moab, and do not provoke them to battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, since I have given Ar as a possession to the descendants of Lot. Verse 19, When you get close to the Ammonites, do not show any hostility to them or provoke them, for I will not give you any of the Ammonites' land as a possession. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. Doesn't it feel or read a little bit like 
God's almost rubbing it into his people. Now, remember, Moses is recounting this to the second generation of his people. But what's at stake here? Why is this favor given to these other groups? And what impact does this have for Israel? Well, the text tells us that there's relationship here to it, right? They call the, the sons of Esau their brothers. A little bit of, uh, of history in terms of the family here. We have Abraham and Sarah, right? Abraham and Sarah have Isaac who marries Rebekah. Rebekah has two twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's name is changed by God himself to Israel. He becomes the father of Israel. They become the chosen people, the people of promise and of the covenant. Exodus 19 tells us that out of all nations, you, Israel, are my treasured possession. But Jacob's other brother, Esau, is also given a promise by God. Even though he's not the child of promise, that he will have land. Genesis 27, and that's fulfilled in Genesis 36. And so, truly, they are cousins to Israel. But they're not the children of the promise. Then there's Lot. Lot is the nephew of Abraham. Lot has two sons, Moab and Ammon. You can read about their, their birth uh, earlier in, uh, in Genesis. But Moab and Ammon are, are given land as a, prom, a fulfillment of the promise that God has given to Lot. They're distant cousins of Israel. And so this is family. In other words, they are children as well of Abraham. That's one reason why God gives them the land that he has promised them. Secondly, it's because God is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. And then thirdly, potentially, I think there's a nod toward the fact that while, while Israel is God's treasured possession, he cares about all the nations. If you want to see this more vividly, look at Isaiah 19 and what God says about Egypt and Assyria, two uh, perennial enemies of, of God's people Israel. But nonetheless, back to these nations. And so here, you know, put yourself in their shoes. The Israelites, they've been wandering around, you know, in the midst of this 38-year time. And yes, their shoes aren't wearing out, their clothes aren't wearing out. But they still don't have their land, and they're marched by intentionally. These other people groups who are related to them, but they know are not the children of promise, and they've already got their inheritance, they've got their possessions, and God makes it clear, these are not for you. Edom, or what in this version is called Seir, the land of Esau, and the two lands of Lot. Moab and, and uh, Ammon. You have to think, putting yourself in their shoes, that there was a little bit of negative, a negative attitude. Like, God, what in the world? Why are we still wandering? We're supposed to be the children of promise. When are we going to get ours? Why do they have their possessions? And I think the big lesson here for God's people what he wants his people to see, what he has for them here, is actually the exact opposite. I think Moses walks them by there and that these three nations and the fulfillment of God's promises to Esau and Lot respectively are a surety, of you, if you will, that God is going to fulfill his promise to them. In other words, if God fulfills the promise to Esau and Lot that it was made hundreds of years ago and they are not the children of the promise, how much more then is he going to fulfill his promise to them? Even though they're wandering and even though it's because of their own rebellion, he has not given up on them, and this is proof positive. And I think that's huge for God's people that they see that. And so Moses recounts two other things, two major movements that, that sort of bring the sojourn season, the wandering season to a close. Number one, they cross the Zered Valley. They cross the valley into the east side of the Jordan. And number two, the, the text actually says three times, makes three references to the fact that the fighting men of Israel are dead. The army is dead. The people that God had said would never enter the promised land are gone. And this means that if these nations 
are a surety of God's promises, but the army is dead and they're not trained or battle-hardened or equipped yet. There is only one way they're getting their possession, and that's if God does it. It forces them to a position of, of choosing to be dependent on the Lord. Think about what that means for us this morning as we think about this idea that we really depend on God for any spiritual victory in our lives. I don't, I don't care if you're struggling with a particular area of sin or, or if there's something that you're trying to overcome, that God sometimes strips things away from our lives to move us to a place of dependence. But could it be perhaps, and I think this is a, another really big application for us, that when we see the promises of God fulfilled in other people or even the blessings of God in other people's lives, that there's a part of us, or at least me, that kind of says, God, when's it going to be my turn? When am I going to get the things that you promised? And maybe it's somebody who's financially really well-off and established or something material, but oftentimes it's not. Maybe it's, when am I going to have a marriage like that? When am I going to be married, period? And that could it be that those things, that seeing the blessing in others' lives is actually a harbinger of God's faithfulness to you. Now, I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that because somebody else buys a brand new whatever that God, eventually you're going to get a brand new whatever. Some of the promises of God are not going to be fulfilled in this lifetime. But when we're in heaven with him. But it still is a surety of God's faithfulness to you, at least as Ephesians says, in the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. One other thing we need to say about this. It's also true that God's people cross a threshold, so to speak, and that all those fighting men are dead. Is there something in your life as you look at the blessings in others and you look at it differently through this, this teaching that we learn in Deuteronomy here and say, wow, maybe this is God's way of saying that he will be faithful to me too. Is there also perhaps some threshold you need to cross and something that needs to die in your life? It might be an addiction that you need the help of Celebrate Recovery or a Christian counselor or discipleship or mentorship to be able to let that die in your life so that you can move into what God has for you and cross that threshold. It might be a relationship that you know before God from his spirit and his word that is not God-honoring, is wrong before him, that needs to die, so to speak. The biblical word would be repentance, that you can step into his will and way. Dave Reed, who was a Bible school professor and a mentor of mine for many years, said this far more succinctly than I do, because I don't say anything succinctly, quite frankly. But he said, sometimes the right way is the long way. Sometimes the right way is the long way. Remember, God marked the sojourn at his correction, the beginning of it. He used that time to demonstrate his provision and his faithfulness. And he ended it at exactly the right time, bringing them through a new route to the promised land for his purposes, for the lessons that he had for them. That brings us to our last point this morning. And that is that not only that God engages with me through my history, God engages with me through my journey, but in, in a full sense of the biblical narrative and the redemptive plan of God, he engages with me through Jesus. And we can actually make that connection as we study Deuteronomy. As we see the activity of God in this passage, and we'll look at it sort of rapid fire in a minute, we, God's activity reveals his purpose and greater detail of his purpose to his people. And if we follow the story of Israel specifically as we study Deuteronomy of this, over this next year and a half, we eventually see that it, it, it uh, leads to 
unveiling God's greater plan for the redemption of humanity, not just Israel, and that brings us to Jesus. And we'll be talking about the arrival of Jesus and how he comes innocently as a baby, appropriate for today, in just a few weeks. Well, let's consider God's activity. Let's look at the 30,000-foot view here. I want to read to you just a few phrases in the passage we read this morning already of God's activity here. Listen to what Moses writes. He says, the Lord told me. The Lord then said to me, God will not give. God will give. The Lord said. The Lord's hand was against them. The Lord spoke. And on and on. He is a God who is involved. At every step of the way, he engages. And that activity brings Israel to this new place. And God begins to reveal more detail to his plan. Now, we've already read the summary verse, but listen to it this time. Note the past tense that's designed to uh, uh, ground them in trusting God in the the present and future. It says this, Deuteronomy uh, 2, verse 7, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through this immense wilderness. The Lord your God has been with you these past 40 years, and you have lacked nothing. And then if we were to peek just a little bit ahead into the passage, Zach, we'll look at next week. He uh, He gives Israel the next step. He says, today I will begin to put the fear and dread of you on the peoples everywhere under heaven. They will hear the report about you, tremble, and be in anguish because of you. God's activity leads to God's purpose, and as he gives detail, and as we see that unfold in the people of Israel, we get a peek at his greater redemptive plan, and that eventually leads us to Jesus. And we know if you read Joshua, you get to see the fulfillment of that verse we just read that the people are in fear of God's people, Israel, because of what he is doing. So there's a really important Sunday school connection we need to make here. And I remember the first time I realized this, like really realized it in my adolescence, that Jesus Christ, who lived on this planet, who walked and lived and died and was buried and rose again, Jesus himself is the same God who parted the Red Sea. Jesus is the same God who is active with his people, as we just read here this morning, in this sojourn. He is God. He is Yahweh. He is God in the flesh. In fact, John the Apostle says in the New Testament about Jesus, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, the Logos, was was God. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing that was created that has been created. Jesus is the primary agent of creation. He is the one by whom and for whom everything that we know and see and experience was made. That he might have the preeminence. Paul says it this way in Colossians. He says he is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. So that he might come to have the first place or have supremacy and preeminence in all things, in everything. Even in your sojourn, your wandering, your wondering. Whatever that valley or that storm, if you will, might be. And he is a God who longs to engage with your story. When we talk about this, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, which is what we're considering here this morning, that God is, is over all things, that he's involved in all things, that he knows all things, his omniscience is in play, it's also important that we uh, parallel God's love. That in his essence and his nature and his very identity, 1 John tells us he is love. He doesn't just possess love, but his very nature 
is love. And we can see that even in God's discipline of Israel. That he's with them, he's engaged, and he's loving. And the same is true for us today if we are engaged with him. God knows the perfect timing of your life. God knows the circumstances. He knows the situations. He knows the people, the places, the events. He knows all of it. He is over all of it. And over and above all of that, he loves you. We sang it this morning. Oh, how he loves you this morning. He is a God who engages with me in my history, in my journey, and ultimately through Jesus. And you know, when it comes down to it, we, the question we began with this morning, where is God in the wandering? Let's broaden that back to our suffering topic. Where is God in, in uh, the abuses of the world or war or mass shootings and all of those things? I don't know about you, but I want a God who is in control of those things, even the things that I can't understand. Rather that when hard things happen, he's somehow parenthetical to it all. But I also want a God who loves me in spite of me. And in Jesus, that's exactly what God offers us. In Jesus, that's what he gives us in himself. Is a God who is in fully control, as we see in Deuteronomy, but a God who is, is completely loving, as we get hinted at in Deuteronomy, but we see fully in the cross of Christ. Why? Because Jesus is God in the flesh who dies for us. He demonstrates the full love of God, Paul says, and he lays down his life for us and pays for our sins. And he raises it up again that we would have new life. He is a God who engages with us. I wonder this morning, is he the Lord of your history? Is he the Lord of your journey? Is he the Lord of your life? Pray with me this morning. I want to lead two short prayers this morning. The first prayer I want to lead in just a minute, you can pray it in your heart, is a prayer of stepping into a relationship with the living God through Jesus. It's a prayer where we recognize, like Israel, there's something that needs to be left behind and there's a threshold that needs to be crossed. I want to pray a prayer for those of you that are believers in the room this morning that say, I'm a Christian, but I have been not only negative in the valley, I have accused God of abandoning me and being absent. And I needed this teaching to be reminded that he's right there and that he has purpose. And so I'm going to leave two prayers. You can pray them in your hearts if it's where you're at. First, for those of you that have never surrendered your lives to Jesus, pray with me. Lord God, this morning, I recognize that there's a bunch of junk I got to step away from. I need to die to. Lord, I am tired of trying to be good enough on my own. God, I'm tired of living a life that I know doesn't please you and I want to step away from my own efforts. I want to step away from my sin. Lord, I want, to, I want to step into that new life and give my life to you, Jesus. I thank you that you died for me. I am choosing to begin my journey with you today, receiving you into my life. In this moment, in Jesus' name, amen. For the Christians in the room, pray this prayer with me. Lord God, I've been walking with you for a long time, but somehow I've gotten off track and I've blamed you for the valley that I'm in. I've blamed you for the sojourn. And Lord, maybe this, in this particular case, this, one, this one's on me, and yet you are being gracious to me. Or maybe life has happened to me, but I know you've got a purpose in this. And I've been wrong. My attitude and my heart has been wrong before you. Lord, I repent. Help me to start anew. Thank you that your love never gives up. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, we serve a God who is unrelenting in his redemptive pursuit of us, even after we give our lives to him. Because he truly is a God 
who engages with me.